TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Now, welcome to Nothing Impossible, sponsored by Accelerate St. Louis, the epicenter of innovation for the St. Louis region. Now, here are your hosts, Michael Calhoun and Travis Sheridan on News Radio 1120, KMOX. Well, I don't think it gets more innovative than figuring out a way to get from St. Louis to Kansas City in about 25 minutes. I'm down with that. That's a that's a long drive sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Long, straight, and empty. We're going to talk with a, a reporter from The Verge about the Hyperloop. You may have heard about this. It's Elon Musk's brainchild. He's the guy behind Tesla and SpaceX. And it's this vacuum tube with a car, floating, levitating car in it that gets uh, shot at 700 miles an hour and would... Break that four-hour drive down to about 25 minutes. So Andrew Hawkins from The Verge is going to call in and join us and um, explain how this would work and also explain if this is actually something that's going to come true. Because we've heard so many, this happens all the time, somebody comes up with a great idea, something that's groundbreaking, but actually getting it to happen is often something else completely. Yeah, we talk sometimes in the in the innovation world about what works in the bench or on the laboratory versus what works in real-world application. And so, yeah, but we'll talk to Andrew a little bit about what the next steps are going to be to really take this technology, the Hyperloop technology, to market and have real application. Just imagine those Cardinals-Royals series weekends. You wouldn't even have to get a hotel in KC. You could just hop on the Hyperloop. Uh, an hour before game time. So would it be the I-70 series or would it be the, like the Hyperloop series? The Hyperloop series. That could be a nice high-tech addition for the state of Missouri. So we will get the details on that. You may have heard about it on TV, social media. People have been buzzing about it in St. Louis, but St. Louis just one of many. Uh, there's one corridor in Texas they're looking at which would connect Austin and Houston and Dallas. There's one from Chicago to Pittsburgh, Orlando to Miami, uh, California, all over the place, Seattle to Portland. So St. Louis to Kansas City, not the only one being considered. Then we're going to talk about what's uh, coming up tomorrow, the CEO to CEO event in St. Louis. It's the CEO of Ascension Healthcare and the CEO of Aphormix, a local St. Louis startup. They're going to be on stage trading stories, maybe some advice. So we'll get a preview of that, too. And also the regional chamber has weighed in when it comes to state funding of innovation. We've talked about the governor's budget and what's happening with uh, negotiations in the state legislature and the funding to the Missouri Technology Corporation that then goes out to uh, make programs like Arch Grants possible. Yeah, not only does it fund programs, uh, but it also puts money directly into startups. They they use that money uh, at the state level to invest uh, in an equity position, an ownership position in a number of startups. Uh, I think one of the most successful ones that we have seen so far has been uh, Benson Hill, which is a biotech company that was attracted to St. Louis from the research triangle in North Carolina, got about one hundred and fifty, maybe $175,000 worth of investment from uh, uh, from Missouri Technology Corporation, and I think they've just raised another $18 million. So that those dollars from Missouri Technology Corporation are very catalytic uh, to the startup scene here. So it's not just giving to programs, but it's also investing hard dollars into startups.
And the regional chamber has just brought on a, a new person to oversee innovation and that sort of thing. So we'll talk with Andrew Smith coming up as well. And also this week, we this past week, we had the soccer stadium vote in St. Louis, which went down. And now we're kind of evaluating what's next. And uh, Dave Peacock, who's one of the partners in SCSTL, had some pretty... Uh, not very optimistic things to say about the region and the state of just affairs with the city-county split and our ability as a St. Louis region to get big projects, to do the big things like soccer stadium, sports, maybe transit. He He's uh, got some doubts about our ability to get things done. But you also talked to Dick Fleming, who uh, used to be the head of the regional chamber mm-hmm. here in St. Louis, was also very, uh, very instrumental and in Denver when Denver was not in its heyday. Oh, no. And then it is now in its heyday. Which so- is hard to believe when you go to Denver now that it was not the booming, cool place that it is today. Right. Uh, and so Dick will have some uh, some opinions on this as well. And so we'll get with uh, Dick Fleming also coming up on the program. But it'll be a, a civic discussion. Maybe this prompts a big conversation in the region about what our priorities are, number one, and then how do we get those accomplished. And I think this is a I, the one thing that I saw with the soccer stadium discussion is that uh, the, as a region, uh, the voters have, or at least as a city, the voters have said the soccer stadium is not our priority right now. And that's okay. I mean, that's what we, we need to be responsive as, as a community. We need to be responsive to the needs of the people. And they voice those needs and express those needs at the ballot box. And it's um, Dave Peacock says they're winding down. We'll see what happens with the soccer stadium effort if there's some other way maybe a taxing district over the land of the stadium or maybe another private investor comes in to fill the hole perhaps they get a naming rights deal i don't know there could be some other ways to plug that hole so there is still hope maybe for, maybe it'll be called hyperloop stadium for a major league soccer stadium <laughs> in st louis hey can you imagine sporting kc versus the st louis soccer team getting into matches and 25 minutes away on the Hyperloop. That's what we're going to talk about up next. The Hyperloop, could it be coming to Missouri? That's up next on Nothing Impossible, sponsored by Accelerate St. Louis on KMOX. Grab your family, friends, and co-workers to join the fight against breast cancer. Help the St. Louis Cardinals and KMOX strike out breast cancer at the 2017 Coleman Race for the Cure, Saturday, June 10th in downtown St. Louis. By joining the official Cardinals and KMOX race team, participants will receive our exclusive Cardinals-themed T-shirt. For more information and to sign up, visit KMOX.com slash Coleman. Special thanks to Ashley Home Store, Overhead Door Company of St. Louis, and Mercy Hospital. Now, back to Nothing Impossible. Sponsored by Accelerate St. Louis, the epicenter of innovation for the St. Louis region on News Radio 1120 KMOX. Welcome back, Michael and Travis with you. And it's been a, well, for techies, I think, and people interested in uh, innovation and looking at the future, they've been looking at the Hyperloop for a while since Elon Musk first came up with the idea, Travis. But now, here in St. Louis, people are starting to uh, go crazy a little bit. Lots of posts on social media. It's the Hyperloop hype happening in St. Louis. Everybody is jazzed about it. And it actually makes a lot of sense looking at that stretch of Interstate 70 between Kansas City and St. Louis. It's it's a straight line. It's a fairly empty line. And it's a relatively inexpensive line of land. Yeah. So let's find out, first off, what exactly is the Hyperloop? We're joined by Andrew Hawkins, writer for The Verge. And he wrote the uh, piece this week, The Hyperloop is Ready for Its Big Kitty Hawk Moment. Thank you for joining us, Andrew. Thanks for having me. So first off, just how do you describe what this thing is? How would it be able to get us from St. Louis to Kansas City, a four-hour drive, in something like 25 minutes? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty fantastic concept. What it is is a it's an elevated tube uh, that stretches between cities, so uh, you know hundreds of miles long, and they would suck all of the air out of this tube. So it would be a close as close to a vacuum as you as you could pretty much get. And then inside the tube would go a, a pod or a capsule uh, made of lightweight material. And they would levitate. They would levitate the tube inside the capsule using uh, passive magnetic lev- levitation. And because there's there's no air resistance, because there's no air in this tube, uh, the the capsule would be able to travel hundreds of miles per hour. Uh, so you're talking five, six hundred, seven hundred, even seven hundred miles per hour uh, uh, through this tube. So you're talking, uh, you know, uh, L.A. to San Francisco in thirty minutes, uh, Boston to D.C. in thirty five minutes. You know, it, it's really. Uh, a pretty uh, science fiction type concept, uh, as I've ever heard. You know, Andrew, I'm from California originally, and everybody was uh, hot and bothered with about high-speed rail out in California a number of years ago, and the project's still moving forward. And I remember my argument, uh, I'm from Fresno, which was going to have one of the first legs of that high-speed rail uh, uh, section. My argument was they're investing all of this infrastructure in a mode of transportation that once the infrastructure is complete, that mode of transportation will be outdated. Why is something like the Hyperloop uh, really much more advanced? And we're looking at this sort of project as planning for the future as opposed to trying to catch up with the past. Yeah, that, that's a really good question. And, and you know, the Hyperloop folks will argue that uh, as compared to high-speed rail, uh, building a Hyperloop is, is, is much cheaper. Uh, and it requires a lot less of the sort of regulatory uh, uh, hurdles and obstacles that, that high-speed rail requires. So because uh, you need to you know, sort of put a track on the ground uh, and, and get all of this uh, you know, land use uh, issues put, a, put away and, and right-of-way, uh, the high-speed rail is is is, is a big is a big co- uh, complication. Whereas a uh, hyperloop, it, it it travels above the ground. It's on pylons in a tube that travels above the ground. So you could have traffic and moving underneath it. You could have, uh, you know, it could go over farmland. It could go over. Uh, it could go underwater. They talk about digging tunnels uh, underground uh, and underwater, uh, and with with a lot less effort than it takes to uh, to build a, a normal uh, train line or a subway. Uh, because it would be uh, a much smaller uh, type of uh, boring project that would that would be required. Um, so th- this is the argument that the, the Hyperloop folks put forward. Uh, it really, you know, it, it puts a bee in the bonnet of a lot of the high-speed rail folks, too, because they say this is a proven technology. We need to get a high-speed rail built. Uh, you know, there's projects in California, projects in Texas uh, that are underway. But the, and the Hyperloop seems to complicate that. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a point of tension there in, in terms of uh, which direction we want to go uh, uh, in, in terms of what type of infrastructure we want for the future. Andrew Hawkins from The Verge is talking with us now. And who's behind this this group that's coming up with these plans? Because the, the original idea, I remember, uh, came from Musk. But who's behind? I mean, is there any financial heft? Is this something that uh, this Hyperloop One startup is actually going to be able to follow through on? Yeah, they, so they've raised around uh, $180 million so far in seed investments from venture capital, uh, from folks that, you know, that, that buy into this vision. Uh, so it, it's, it's pretty, they have some real money behind them. Uh, and there's also another startup called Hyperloop Transportation Technologies, also based in Los Angeles. Both companies are based in Los Angeles. Both have raised funds. Uh, the Hyperloop One company is, has, is a bit of a distinction because uh, they've actually uh, built a test track. They've shown off 
uh, some of their technology. They're going to be conducting a, a full system test later this year. Uh, so there seems to be some some uh, some momentum behind them. Uh, that said, you know it, it's it's really still uh, anyone's guess as to whether or not this is something that's really going to gain traction. Uh, you know, you've mentioned before that it's it's very difficult to build infrastructure in this in this country. There's a lot of regulatory hurdles. It's really uh, difficult to find investors that want to put money into these big projects that cost a lot of money. Uh, that said, there's a lot of talk about infrastructure these days in Washington and around the country. There seems to be a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, you know, our our infrastructure in this country is pretty poor. Uh, I think uh, recently it was given a, a D-plus by um, the American Society for Civil Engineers, and they estimated it would take about $2 trillion over 10 years to close the gap, uh, given how, how, uh, what a bad state our roads and bridges and airports are. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the Hyperloop, it's big, it's shiny, it's futuristic, it really appeals to a lot of people. Uh, but we really need to see some more from these companies as to how this technology actually works uh, before I think we could really count on it uh, sort of saving us from uh, falling into a state of disrepair. Now, Andrew, there are, uh, I think, 35 cities uh, or 35 projects that were shortlisted as semifinalists. Uh, how many were in the running overall? How many applications were submitted for this sort of project? Yeah, so the the Hyperloop One folks, they put together this global challenge, and they got 2,600 uh, uh, submissions from around the world. Uh, in the end, they, they ended up whittling that down to about 35, like you said. 11 of them are from the United States, and uh, those 11 uh, uh, city uh, cities, uh, or I'm sorry, 11 applicants came to Washington, D.C. yesterday, uh, where I, I was as well, to present their, uh, their projects to the Hyperloop One folks. Uh, now, that said, this is, you know, it's a, it's a pretty nice uh, marketing move by Hyperloop One. Uh, it sort of shows that they have a lot of people excited for it. Uh, they have city officials, government officials who are excited for it. Uh, but, you know, I talked to a lot of these applicants, a lot of these government officials who, who trekked all the way to D.C. to show off their projects, and, and no one's really ready to commit to cutting a check yet, I think, is, is a pretty key point to make. Uh, they're all really excited about it. They think that it's something that, uh, could really transform their, their states and their cities. Uh, but in terms of how it's going to get built, who's going to put up the money for it, uh, and sort of how that process is going to unfold, I think is really still uh, anyone's guess. Uh, last question before we wrap up. Is there any idea about cost per mile or what this would look at look like uh, from a construction standpoint or even an operational standpoint? Yeah, there's been some, some, uh, some estimates out there. The Hyperloop folks say uh, that, you know, it would, it would cost, uh, you know, uh, uh, it, it, way, way less than, than it, it would cost to build a, a high-speed rail. But there are, have also been leaked financial documents that show uh, that, that there may be undercutting uh, that price a little bit, that it's actually going to be a little bit more expensive than they, than they suggest. It really all depends on, you know, sort of what materials they're using and how much energy they propose to use as well. Uh, you know, there have been some proposals about, you know, uh, having these, uh, these tubes that they would build uh, covered in solar, uh, solar panels that would, uh, you know, end up producing energy uh, at the same time as, the, as, it, as uh, it would be using energy. Uh, so there's, you know, there's a lot of proposals. I, I think we're really not going to be able to see uh, exactly how much it costs until they start putting shovels in the ground uh, and start really showing, you know, some, some of their plans to these states. Uh, and that could be, you know, years from now. All right, Andrew Hawkins will be watching, and great reporting on The Verge. We'll keep up to date there. And thank you so much for uh, joining us. Thanks for having me. Happy to do it.
And we'll continue with more innovation talk coming up next. We're going to talk about the CEO to CEO event that's coming up Monday, tomorrow here in St. Louis. That's up next on Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Depend on KMOX when news breaks. News on the hour, 24 hours a day, with bulletins at any time on News Radio 1120 KMOX. Welcome back to Nothing Impossible on KMOX. Travis Sheridan, and I get to chat with Andrew Smith, who is the new Vice President of Innovation over at the St. Louis Regional Chamber. Uh, Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Travis. So you uh, came to St. Louis by way of Louisville, is that correct? That's right. And you've been in town how long now? Uh, this is my third week. Oh, that's my plenty of time. <laughs> that's plenty of time. <laughs> yeah, there's hardly anything going on, right? Right, nothing at all. But there is something <laughs> going on. We have the CEO to CEO conversation happening tomorrow. Uh, and tell us a little bit about that, because that's one of the things that happens through Accelerate St. Louis, right? That's right. Yeah, one of, I think one of the things the, the Chamber does really, really well is convene opportunities for big companies to engage with smaller emerging companies, right, and, and, and sort of facilitate that dialogue, facilitate that interchange of ideas and energy really to both companies' benefits and to the benefit of the entire St. Louis business community. And this is a great example of that. We've got uh, Tony Tersini from Ascension Health, who is going to be uh, talking with Blake Margraff from eFarmax, and it's moderated by Jack Spear from NPR. So I think it's going to be a really exciting conversation about future, the future of healthcare technologies, um, what Ascension is seeing um, as one of the biggest and smartest players in the country, um, and obviously what eFarmax is doing in terms of mobile health. And so what is, uh, what's the main goal of having these, uh, a large, established CEO have a, having a conversation with a startup CEO? Yeah, you know, I think it, it really comes down to the exchange of ideas and perspectives and energy um, around focused topics and focused industries. Um, so, you know, here we've got an example of a, a really big, really smart player in Ascension that has a global view of what's happening in the U.S. healthcare system, talking with um, an innovator um, in eFarmix that's doing really interesting things in mobile health. They're going to have slightly different perspectives on things, right? But they're, they're all trying to solve similar problems. And what we're seeing in St. Louis right now is that when we put large established companies together with innovators and entrepreneurs, good things tend to happen. And you saw that recently with the announcement of the Ameren Accelerator. You know, Ameren is, is another fantastic corporate citizen in St. Louis that has a real interest in promoting innovation and entrepreneurship. And they're partnering with uh, Capital Innovators to launch uh, an accelerator that's targeted on the energy sector. I think that's brilliant. I think what's going to happen out of that is you're going to have lots and lots of innovators and entrepreneurs that are having these kinds of conversations and these engagements with big, smart players within the energy sector, and great companies are going to come out of it. So anytime we can put these kinds of groups together, um, provide a platform for them to exchange ideas, and then invite the, the broader business community to be a part of it, that's something that the Chamber loves to do. And then one more question for you. Uh, since mm-hmm. you're new to town, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm um, kind of a lifelong entrepreneur by, by uh, background and by temperament. Um, I got my start in 1994 right when the Internet was taking off as a, as a consumer phenomenon. And I was working at the time on Wall Street. I just graduated from college. And the bank that I was working for was incubating a couple of projects. One of them was the one that I ended up going to work for, which was Juno Online Services, free email company. Oh, um, I remember Juno. Other, yeah. Yeah, yeah <laughs> Juno. It's kind Old of a, a major blast from <laughs> yeah, the past, right? Yeah. 
Um, I know it's funny because here we are, you know, twenty something years later, and I feel like I'm talking about being involved in creating eight tracks. <laughs> um, although many of your listeners might not even know what eight tracks are. <laughs> no, they do. Okay, they do. good. All right. Yeah, that's right. Everything kind of comes back around again. Yeah. So uh, the other project that we were uh, working on um, was this kind of quirky, interesting senior vice president of the bank who had this notion that people would eventually buy things on the internet, and specifically they wanted to buy. He thought they would want to buy books. So he was outsourcing books and finding ways to sell books directly to consumers using email and setting up little mini micro websites. The bank eventually decided that they did not think people would buy books and perhaps not much of anything online. Um, and so they allowed the senior vice president to take his company and move to Seattle. And that was Jeff Bezos <laughs> and Amazon.com. And now um, I think uh, I think their share price is right around nine hundred dollars a share. If I, I looked recently, that, that sounds about right. <laughs> that sounds about right. So that's one of those stories of one that got away. And then I just got hooked. I, I ended up going to work for Juno, helping them raise capital, do marketing and distribution deals, uh, bounced around at a couple of other early stage startups um, pre IPO, and helped them do the deals to power their IPOs. Then eventually started one of my own businesses, had a successful exit from that. And just kind of repeated the cycle um, with varying degrees of success, and you know some not not so successful in there too. Um, and then uh, really got interested in uh, using to, using technology um, to drive improved customer experience. And from there, I ended up working in healthcare, and most recently for the Kentucky Derby. Well, wonderful. Well, you know, I'm glad that I'm glad that you're in town. I'm glad that you moved here from Louisville. And I, I'm going to end on this last question, uh, and it has to do with. Uh, Missouri Technology Corporation and the funding for startups within the state. Uh, the governor has cut the funding. The, uh, the legislature is trying to look, look at where they could put some of that money back in. But from the chamber's perspective, as, as, a, as an advocate for business, both large and small, how important is Missouri Technology Corporation to the startup community? Right. Well, we, we think it's very important, um, and we've put out some, um, some, some statements to that effect. Um, we, you know, we're, we're looking at this... Um, you know, in, in kind of the context of what the governor is dealing with. I mean, we know that he's got significant budget shortfalls that he's got to find a way to, to, to plug. Um, and there are hard decisions that he's going to have to make. At the same time, our hope is that the legislature allows him to keep a seat at the table. We think that uh, Governor Greitens has a really interesting and valuable perspective on innovation and technology. We think that he is going to put his own stamp on it um, during his tenure as governor. And we're excited to, to, to be engaged in that process with him. Um, in order to do that, you know, again, he, he, he needs to have a seat at the table. He has clearly put a chip in in requesting $5 million in funding for the Missouri Technology Corporation. Now, that's not at the level that we wanted. It's not at the level that it's been at previously, but it's a clear sign that he, he sees value in it uh, and that he wants to, as I said, keep that seat at the table. Uh, at this point, the ball is really in the, the court of the legislature. Um, they are... You know, at, at, uh, talking about different levels of funding, there's been some talk about cutting it all together, some talk about really putting it on a life support level at around a million dollars in funding, which we think is, is not a good idea. Um, our hope is that the legislature will support what the governor has asked for, which is $5 million in funding. And that will, again, allow him to stay at the table, can continue to be engaged with entrepreneurs, with innovators, and kind of build from there, right? I mean, we, we don't know what the next several years are going to hold, but we, we do think that he has a really valuable perspective and deserves to be involved. Well, Andrew Smith, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, Again, welcome to St. Louis, uh, the Vice President of Innovation and Entrepreneurship over at the St. Louis Regional Chamber. Uh, we look forward to CEO to CEO, which is Monday over at T-Rex. Thank you. Thank you.
and we'll be back on Nothing Impossible. Get the latest from the Cardinals from manager Mike Matheny on the SAPA GM Country Mike Matheny Show. Sundays at 1015, exclusively on your home for best Cardinals coverage. KMOX. Now, back to Nothing Impossible. Sponsored by Accelerate St. Louis, the epicenter of innovation for the St. Louis region. On News Radio 1120, KMOX. All right, well, we have talked about the soccer stadium effort in St. Louis and how it failed this past Tuesday, and there's a lot of... uh, you look at social media, there's some people with a lot of desperation kind of statements out there, but what really is the future of the St. Louis region? Is it as pessimistic as some people might say? Is it uh, as dire as some people might say? Is it as divided as some people might say? Is it as sad? No, I don't think it is. <laughs> I, mean, like, I don't think it is. I mean, the, the proposition didn't pass. Okay, you know what? Put on our, our adult pants. And get back to work. Let's figure out what else is going on in St. Louis. Because sometimes after a setback, you need a reminder of where you are and what you have already accomplished. And so I talked with the former president of the then RCGA, now known as the Regional Chamber, Dick Fleming, about what's going on in St. Louis in terms of economic development and also some of the things that he's seen in other cities over the course of his long career, some of the things they've done to improve. And so here is Dick Fleming, interview recorded at the Cortex Innovation District. What is the reason to be optimistic about the St. Louis region? I think there are many reasons, and understandably, the folks that were advancing the cause for soccer, uh, you know, it was a disappointment. Uh, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a glass half full guy, uh, having done this kind of economic development work most of my career in Atlanta and Denver, and we were flat on our back in Denver uh, and came back and look at Denver today. I see St. Louis as a place of extraordinary unfulfilled opportunity, and there are a number of things that are actually happening now that if we can connect the dots and and leverage them with one another, the success of Cortex, the, the, the fact that uh, the city was successful in landing a $1.75 billion anchor at Northside Regeneration in and the new NGA headquarters and what, what Northside is about to become, the first uh, new market rate housing in North City in probably five generations, uh, and uh, the, the, new, uh, the new development that is happening at pruitt Igo in terms of a, of a health works village in an area that has, has not had good medical services and, and an innovation district now being planned across the street from the new NGA headquarters. And you look at what Cortex has spawned around Cortex. I have my office here in Cortex. It's uh, it's remarkable. Uh, I I serve on a, a national board uh, on placemaking and innovation district for the Brookings Institute, and they're looking at St. Louis as a best practices example. So we ought to start believing in ourselves and building off of the momentum that has already been created, uh, both here at Cortex, what's what's in the works at Northside. Downtown is getting its second wind in terms of what T-Rex is doing and what the Globe Building is doing. And there, you know, there's a whole technology base there that Gabe Lozano and his colleagues at Locker Dome are envisioning a thousand tech firms in downtown by 2020. Uh, uh, we, we made a strong case to the NGA and to the federal government that what has happened at Cortex is going to happen in the rest of our center city at Northside. And 
Grand Center is is becoming more than just a great place for entertainment. They're they're recruiting companies. They recruited an international company there for their headquarters, and they're building housing there. Uh, we need to we need to put a fresh start on some of the things that have have gone down a bit in downtown. We need to get the housing going again in downtown. Uh, I see these as all opportunities, and even on the sports front, uh, you know, we uh, we were very, very disappointed some years ago when we got the funding, the public-private funding for the new Bush Stadium through the Senate, and the Speaker at the time wouldn't bring it up in the House, and everybody said, "Oh my God, the Cardinals are not going to have." Well, we got a nice ballpark there because Plan B was developed, and I don't know if that can happen with soccer or not. I'm certainly not an expert, and it's obviously going to be up to the folks that are that are pursuing that. But in the larger equation, we have so much opportunity, as as our new mayor, uh, about to be new mayor, Lyda Krusen said on election night, uh, we need to set our sights high, whether it be dealing with the problems that we clearly have or seizing the opportunities we have. And what, what we're talking about here are opportunities. You mentioned unfulfilled promise. And, you know, the the thing I've heard, the phrase I've heard multiple times in the last few days has been in St. Louis gets in its way, own way again. St. Louis continually gets it in its own way. Is that something that you, you agree with that sentiment or, you know, what what's behind this unfulfilled promise? Well, attitude certainly does have uh, something to do with it. As I, as I said, I've I've done uh, and and led economic development in Atlanta and Denver before I was recruited here to St. Louis to uh, head the chamber from '94 uh, to 2012. And uh, we sometimes do get in our own way, uh, and I think um, I'd put it in a more proactive way and say we need to start. Uh, thinking of the opportunities on the upside. In in Denver and in Atlanta, the competition is fierce, but when it's not a zero-sum mentality. It's not a mentality that when one player wins, everyone else loses. And at times, I think we get into that routine here, uh, that we have a scarcity mentality at times, and we ought to have an opportunity mentality, and and we ought to, you know, celebrate when someone wins, even if the others are competing with them. Uh, as I said, in Denver, uh, when when a developer wins a very uh, aggressively competed deal, they pat them on the back and they said, the, the pie has grown and everybody gets a bigger share. And that's, I think, what we need to aspire to in St. Louis. And so is that attributed, do you think, to the city-county split and the 90 municipalities all of these mayors competing against each other, even just to lure the Walmart from up the street? Or do you think that St. Louis can move forward without some wholesale reorganization of our governments? Well, I, you know, having seen what's happened in places like Indianapolis, I, I certainly think that is an ideal ultimately, but that is not an excuse for what we're talking about here. I think we can, we can do what we're talking about of having an opportunity mentality apart from how the city and the county are structured. I think it would be great to rationalize that relationship and to, to make it more workable from a governmental standpoint. Standpoint. But the attributes that we have and the assets that we have can be leveraged and enhanced apart from the governmental structure. It's, Are we doing that enough? 
Uh, I think we're beginning to do it. I think certainly what we've seen here in the in the 15 years of Cortex, which was, you know, it was a, a completely a fresh start that grew out of a new aspiration that uh, Bill Danforth and the RCGA and, and, and the institutions, the universities said, uh, we've got a future uh, in an area that we never even thought of as an industry called plant life sciences. And look what's happened, you know, with the Danforth Center, with what... Uh, has happened here at Cortex, what's happening now in Crevecore with the whole ag tech district there. We need to build on that and do more of it. St. Louis has had the success at Danforth here at Cortex with T-Rex, but what about sustaining those unfulfilled promise? Is there a chance that uh, we don't connect all of these together or something happens, we don't fund arch grants in it? fades away into the future. I mean, that seems like it's a St. Louis kind of a getting in its own way thing where we might have a great success, but then we don't sustain it. Well, I think there's every reason to expect that we should sustain it. Shame on us if we don't. And there's enough proof in the return on investment from what's already happened and what's now about to happen in the completion of Cortex with what's about to happen with Northside Regeneration and NGA that uh, we, uh, again, it gets back to my point. I see the glass as half full and uh, and fulfilling the rest of that uh, uh, glass is a function of people putting their shoulder to the wheel. And I was uh, I was inspired with uh, with the opportunity that the, that the incoming mayor talked about on Tuesday night. I mean, she was very candid. She said, "We got problems. We got to deal with this crime issue. We got to deal with the crime, the, the 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 literal crime that's happening, and the perceived." A concern about safety, but we also have something of a momentum now with the technology and the, the kind of decision that NGA made with the success that Cortex has made, and we need to build off of that. And uh, I, I, think, uh, I think that uh, we need to keep reminding ourselves we're in a competitive environment. Uh, for all the good things that have happened at Cortex and uh, that are about to happen uh, in downtown and at Northside, there was a ranking that came out uh, the other week, and Charlotte was rated the best tech city in America, and we were something like 40-something. And Kansas City was up in the top 20, and I think we need to learn from that. And I know, you know, we, we still blame them for 1985 in the World Series, but I think we can learn something from Kansas City, and I think we can do some partnering with them and vice versa in what is trying to happen in terms of the tech uh, economy, and uh, that's going to bolster the whole state. You've mentioned Denver. I don't think anybody who would stop into Denver today could imagine it looking the way that you described it. So what's been, what's happened in Denver to give it this, not just the actual improvements and growth and everything that's happened, but the attitude that people across the country, why does Austin, why is Austin, you know, viewed the way it is? Or why is Portland looked at as this, you know, cool, hip growing place? What what happened in Denver? Well, yeah, and Denver has both a history of, of being uh, pretty venturesome in this respect. The the, the founding of the chamber in Denver uh, back in the 1800s, uh, and I had the pleasure of uh, serving as their CEO in the, in the, uh, in the late 80s and the early 90s. Uh, was that the railroads decided to bypass the Transcontinental Railroad, went to Wyoming to Cheyenne instead of Denver. And the next morning, uh, the business leadership went out and started 
raising private money and they put a bond issue on the ballot and they financed building the the connection to the transcontinental railroad from denver it otherwise probably would have been a dust town uh or a ghost town uh, and when we went through the energy collapse in uh, in the mid and late 80s in denver it was pretty devastating we went from a situation where we were adding 5,000 people a month to denver everyone showing up getting a job uh, we had a thousand, a thousand energy companies based in downtown, from two-person operations to twenty-five hundred-person operations of the big companies, and overnight in one year we lost one hundred eighteen thousand jobs when the energy uh, economy collapsed, and the community, both the public sector and the private sector, we elected a new mayor in Federico Pena by the way, who ran on a campaign, Imagine a Great City, in the middle of this. And uh, the community, the public and private sector community, put their shoulders to the wheel and seized the opportunity. We said we can cry in our beer over what just happened, or we can seize it and deal with it. And we, we seized it, and we dealt with it. We built a new airport to solve a problem. We redid our downtown. We created a regional funding system for the arts. We recruited Major League Baseball. We settled a seven-year site selection battle between warring billionaires on where the convention center should go. Um, and the result today is, uh, there was just an article last week in one of the London papers of uh, the headline of which is Denver, the coolest city today in the United States. Well, that didn't just happen. It happened because of taking a set of opportunities and challenges and believing in the place. And I think we have many of those same opportunities. We're not nearly as down and out as Denver was in, say, 1990. Um, and we have many more uh assets that Denver would die for in terms of our cultural institutions and they would kill for a Washington University, although Emory would say that they're pretty good. Um, we simply need to step back from this and say, how do we make the most of it in the competitive economy we're in globally and nationally? And I think we're beginning to see that happen. That's Dick Fleming. Thank you for joining us this week on another episode of Nothing Impossible. We'll see you next week. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.